Hello, and welcome to Civil Discourse Reimagined, a podcast where I strive to promote a civilized discussion of current political issues and an expansion of one's perspective through unbiased, informative conversation. The opinions I state in these conversations are not meant to influence your perspective. They are simply a way for me to conduct a thorough reflection of my own opinion on the issue at hand. It is my hope that this podcast will provide insight into the issues that continue to affect our nation and inspire you all to formulate your own beliefs through proper investigation and courteous dialogue. Today, I spoke with Dr. Jesus Hernandez, a professor at the University of California, Davis, and an independent consultant for JCH Research. Dr. Hernandez and I discussed the formation of racially motivated policies in the greater Sacramento area and how their implementation continues to disproportionately affect minority communities. We also identified racist policies such as mortgage redlining, urban renewal, and racial covenants, and discussed how these practices fueled the cycle of social ills we still witness in a number of disadvantaged communities within Sacramento. Thank you all for tuning in to the third episode of Civil Discourse Reimagined. Welcome, everybody, to our third episode of Civil Discourse Reimagined. Today, I'm joined with Mr. Jesus Hernandez. Mr. Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us today. I just wanted to start off this conversation by really giving our listeners some context into some of the racial injustices that we've seen within our own neighborhoods within the greater Sacramento area. Do you think you could give us just somewhat of a summarization of some of the policies and housing policies that have really affected these various neighborhoods? Um, it's hard to do it in a, in a, in a, in a quick soundbite. Uh, the question is, is really broad and comprehensive. Uh, I think a better way to consider it would be to see, uh, see it as an illness, as a illness that's cumulative in nature, that, that, that builds upon previous episodes of, of illness, as well as previous episodes of neglect. And when you put these together, then you, you get, you know, these, these lesions or cancerous forms of things that are happening. And if we could relate that to housing itself, you know, how housing really initiated in, in the urban areas was uh, people looking to divide rich and poor and people of color through urban planning and other forms. And so housing took this, 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 uh, this approach of, of segregating. So uh, during the early years of, of uh, real estate development, we included uh, appraisals as part of understanding what a property is worth. And as part of that appraisal process, we actually incorporated the color or the race of the residents as a unique indicator of value. Uh, this is done in a book uh, by Homer Hoyt in, in the early 30s uh, and the National Association of Real Estate Boards uh, who gave, uh, who developed appraisal uh, educational tools. And in those tools, they identified a, a ranking of uh, minorities and ethnic groups that had the highest effect of values and the lowest effect. And the highest effect would be those ethnic groups that came from a, a lighter skinned or a wider skinned uh, populations. And then the negative effects would be those darker skinned ethnic groups such as uh, African-American and Mexican and things of this sort. And so they would incorporate this into their, their uh, appraisals. So now you would see that people of color had a negative effect on property. And so when they did that, now we turned race into an economic action. So now we can justify the use of race as an economic problem that we needed to solve. So race becomes embedded into this, this kind of uh, mathematical calculation of value 
And because the minorities affected value negatively, then it became a reason to exclude them from neighborhoods. And there's where you get the onset of things like race covenants, which only restricted housing to whites. And then from there, it just kind of stacks up. So once you put that, that, that racial characteristic as a, uh, as a uh, value of fairness, and that's when everything snowballed and everything stacked upon there. And so when federal programs came in looking to uh, provide mortgages for, for families across the United States, race became one of those characteristics on who could qualify for a loan. And that's when you see this division between white and black and brown and every other color. Right. And that's where we sort of get into that um, subject of redlining as well, right? Where you really start to see actual plans where people designate higher quality areas solely based on those minorities' races and the colors of their skin. And that's kind of that association of race and value that I hear you talk about a lot as well within your conversations. So you will see... Uh, that in the underwriting guidelines, the guidelines that says who gets approved for a loan, back in the 30s when those redlining maps came out, those redlining maps targeted uh, racially integrated neighborhoods. And uh, as a condition of financing, getting an FHA loan, you had to have a race covenant on your property. So if you look at the if, you're, if your home is built before 1950 in Sacramento, uh, chances are you're gonna find one of those, those deed restrictions in, in your uh, covenants of uh, restrictions on, on your, on your, that's, that's attached to your deed. And so when you can see that, you can say, oh yeah, these were all the FHA loans were gone. So that's how Sacramento began to grow through that FHA program and this was a way for the nation to recover from the Great Depression back in the uh, late 1920s. I think it started in 1929. It was triggered and it went into the mid-30s. And so that's how we got to recover is through this new housing program. And so what that program did was made a mortgage cheaper than rent. Prior to that, mortgages were like five years. So you had to pay off your house in five years, right? Which means only the wealthy could really afford a home. But when the Great Depression hit, banking went you know, belly up and stocks, stock market crashed and everything like that, none of those folks can refinance their home. So they were stuck with these defaulted loans and everybody started losing their homes. And so the thing is, is that the only people who were owning homes back then were white folks because they're the only ones who can afford the mortgage, right? So we created this bailout program uh, that helped people refinance those homes that were in, in, in uh, going through foreclosure at that time. Pretty much the same thing you've seen about 10 years ago that happened. It was almost the exact same thing. And uh, that's when those race covenants really began to be used across the nation. Uh, in, in, a, in, a, you know, in big numbers, because now anybody could start applying for loans. That was one of the things that Roosevelt and the administration did is make financing available for everything. So it took those five-year loans, turned them into 30-year loans, so that the homes became cheaper than rent. You know, anybody can afford them and construction started happening and everything started booming. And that's when you see all this stuff right around World War II happened when people are just building everywhere in Sacramento, but they're building with FHA loans, meaning that we're only building for whites. Right. And now you've established okay. this, this set of conditions where you're really only focusing in on a specific group of people. And is, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, so the key thing here is that now we're developing this financing tool across the United States. So you're seeing this infrastructure, this financing infrastructure happening across the United States, but it's only for whites. So now you've separated the whole nation through this housing tool. So that's how it becomes embedded into everything that we do. Yeah. So when you're starting to build all these neighborhoods and you're building them for whites, 
they're the only ones that get the, the shopping centers and the roads. And so that's how you, and then you leave these neighborhoods behind uh, in the inner city. And then that's how you've got these, you know, this is how you see the dynamics of a place like Detroit, and Cleveland, and Washington, D.C., and New York City, and Harlem, and places like that. This is how the, the, the onset of the ghetto becomes a reality. And how do you think the, with the uh, introduction of the, the idea of urban renewal, right? Especially in an area given like Sacramento, where we have plenty of ongoing development within downtown and a lot of that in order to really, you know, become the attraction that we want people to see. But at the same time, from a historical sense, you saw urban renewal be the reason that actually drove minorities out of the downtown area, right? I mean, how did that influence, you know, that, that segregation that you've mentioned with redlining and all of that other. So, so in Sacramento, you see that the downtown area uh, for, known as the West End, mm-hmm. that was the red line space in Sacramento. And that was also the place where uh, most minorities could stay because you had these race covenants going through town. So either you're staying in a redlined area or you're out of, you know, out in the outer edges doing agricultural work around the, the edges of the county. And, and Sacramento was, you know, big on agriculture. Right. Uh, so downtown uh, was basically a, uh, almost like a, uh, an employment center for migrant labor. Because Sacramento was surrounded by ag, uh, you know, like like Natomas. Natomas used to be one big tomato field, uh, and so you'd have the, the downtown was the center for this migrant activity, which is why you saw all these uh, old hotels with, with just small rooms. Mm-hmm. Called, they call them single family occupancy, uh, single resident occupancy kind of thing, SRO, and uh, and so that's why you see the all all those hotels that been in downtown Sacramento before they were torn down, because this is where, this is the home for all of the migrant labor. And so you would have employers coming in with trucks downtown and saying, hey, we're picking tomatoes today, nickel a box, who's on? Then they would jump on a truck and then run out there and then run back in and uh, the truck would come back in town, drop everybody off to the hotel room. And so all, so, uh, it became the center for migrant activity, the migrant labor activity, which was huge in California. Because once we learned <clears throat> not only how to put trains on a track, but we learned how to refrigerate them, now we can send produce anywhere in the nation. So, so Northern California, this became a staple uh, you know, for, for, for economic productivity. The problem is we had all these minorities downtown now, were places that didn't get any financing because they were all redlined. And so now you're bringing in more labor. And then we have World War II, where we interned the Japanese in camps. Right. And that was part of your labor force. So now you bring in Mexican labor from, from Mexico through the Bracero program in the 40s, which is how my father got here. And... Uh, so now when you do this, you're bringing in this concentration of minorities into a red line space, which means one, because you got all these colored people there, it's gonna devalue in the property because you're using all these old appraisal techniques, right? So now your the values implode and you're downtown neck across the street from the Capitol and you have all, and you have these new enclaves of minorities coming in and you see that they're developing their own little little cities. Japantown was just a huge thing over there. They had their own banks, churches, schools, everything uh, to as a way to survive the, the uh, effects of segregation. And so they basically developed their own little communities. Uh, uh, African-American population is near, the, near where the WX is now. Uh, the Mexican population was an old sack and parts of uh, uh, where the, the I-5 WX connector is, uh, G- uh, Chinatown, all these communities had their own uh, vibrancy to them where they were, you know, pretty much standing on their own 
to deal with the effects of segregation. And so now that you have so many minorities in one place, it becomes the bullseye for redevelopment. Because, you know, it has no value and the city wants to clean things up. And we always, you know, say there's drama there and crime and this. and right. you, you, you create the scenario for justifying destruction. And so we wipe out all of downtown Sacramento, turn it over to developers, and you get what you see today. Uh, we're still working on that. Uh, and so that's how that part develops downtown. You see downtown developing. In the meantime, you've got Arden Park and Carmichael and you know all these places blooming with the FHA post-war stuff. And now we've got to figure out how to connect all of this, and we start putting freeways in. And so if you see, look at the West End, you'll see where I-5 goes right through Japantown right. and Chinatown splits it all up so that you have to disperse it, right? Uh, and the same thing with the WX, uh, those census tracts that are right underneath the WX, that was the highest concentration of African-Americans in the city at the time. So now you use these freeways to get people out of there. Uh, and in the meantime, you use the freeways to divide people. So that in Highway 99 divides Curtis Park from Oak Park, and that's where the race covenants end. So you can see how we use urban planning as a way to help roll out uh, the, uh, the ideals behind segregation and housing segregation and, and, and racializing how we... Uh, how we develop who can live where, you know, our, our neighborhoods, how do we develop our neighborhoods? Uh, certain people can go certain places. So when redevelopment hits, now you've got to get rid of 10,000 minorities from downtown Sacramento. Right. Where do you put them? <laughs> you put them in places without race covenants, which means North and South. Right. So this is how you can see the creation of Del Paso Heights, and South Sacramento, Oak Park starts to boom, Fruit Ridge, and places go south. And this is how we get to the point all the way to Meadowview. So that we see this concentration of race and poverty from North Highlands all the way to Meadowview. And, and like in a corridor of race and poverty, because this is where we push people. So the ghetto is not something that's fixed. We move it around according to the needs of what we're trying to do in our cities and who we designate can live where. Right. And I, and I think another important thing too, is that, you know, you've touched on this a lot in your previous conversations and interviews about how that is still continuing to be reinforced through the lack of funding that's allocated to those areas. And I really wanted to touch on that as well with you because, you know, you've talked about in your previous interviews with Beth Ruyak in 2018 about how, the mayor at the time was really trying to implement a triage system, triage centers and really address the homelessness problem. But at the same time, you were still wary of what he was doing because, you know, as you said then, you really needed to be able to address the community head on and really actually discuss the issues that were occurring within each of those communities. Have you seen any real progress within the funding that's been allocated to those areas or is it still a longstanding issue? Well, so... What happens now is you know, to put infrastructure into a neighborhood, um, there's a process that government agencies go to, local government agencies. So we have uh, transportation dollars, for example, distributed at the regional level. So you've got nation, state, region, and at the regional levels, where we park a lot of our uh, um, funding for like things like light rail and, and, and uh, roads and things of this sort, they're parked at the regional level. And all of the local municipalities, like cities and counties, apply for those. So they're competing against each other to apply for the grants in their neighborhood or in their areas, their jurisdictions where they're going to function. And so... Uh, so the projects percolate from below to the cities and the cities then make the application at the regional level to bring that money down. And so it's 
up to cities to do the planning to make sure that that funding gets to every neighborhood. And what we've seen that cities are only planning for certain areas as opposed to others. So when we start mapping all these dollars, when you can actually map the dollars of where they go, you will see that they go in the places that originally had those race covenants. <laughs> and, and not a lot of money is going into these places that are north and south. And of course, coincidingly, you're going to see a lot of that money being, you know, thrown towards the areas that have developed the most and that are booming, right? As you said, Land Park, Curtis Park, and all of those really like strong areas. So we show our priorities by the way we fund. And so Sacramento and all the, most of the grants that they apply for are set for downtown. We want that Disneyland effect to happen. That's a source of uh, revenues to the city, the tax dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And so the higher the value you have all these properties and the more income that they make, the more you can tax and the city thrives. And, you know, logically, the city should reinvest in in the entire city. Right. In theory, that's how it should work. Yeah. In reality, when we start measuring where the money goes, we see that it follows these old patterns of where we put affluence, money follows affluence, and people that are poor are not getting a whole lot of support. This is where we close. We can measure every social ill by this. So, uh, and that, that's been the foundational piece for my work is this, this pattern of where uh, whiteness and affluence goes from east to west in the city, mm-hmm. and poverty and race goes north and south. And so when you start measuring things like educational outcomes or uh, healthcare outcomes or housing outcomes or whatever it may be, it comes with this, this geographical footprint that you can almost predict what the outcomes are going to be. Right. Uh, I kind of wanted to turn the conversation towards the uh, access to education and the educational outcomes that you just mentioned. Um, one of the resources that you sent me that I um, looked at talked about Arriaga versus Sacramento City Unified School District in 2013 and the closing of those schools in South Sacramento. I mean, the, the, the research that you did and the, the work that you've done within that is so compelling, right? The, this correlation between the access to those institutions and economic stability is so profound. I was wondering, could you expand a little bit on how rulings like that have really impacted these minority neighborhoods? So, so the first thing is, is that schools are, are much more than education. Yeah. Uh, they are community hubs. They're hubs that, that everybody from all these neighborhoods come and deposit their kids. Okay, so you're getting this, this group formation happening that where people are putting their kids to get educated, you'll see that, you know, the parents start building bonds and, you know, especially with, and your school is a primary example. I mean, you know, the music program you have there, people are flocking to it, you know, you've got one of the best jazz combos out there in the world and stuff, you know, so you'll see that these rich educational assets are developed because of the people that are around there. And they have means and they share this and they keep that there. And it makes those your students thrive. And so when you're looking at other neighborhoods that don't have that capacity or that do, that are building that cultural richness within their areas, and then you close the school, what happens? And so now you're dispersing these, not only students, but parents as well. And you're making them fit into other situations that they may not fit very well because they've developed their own little culture, their own little families here, right? Yeah. Now you're bringing them into another neighborhood, which may not like that type of family because we've been trained for decades that there's a connection between color and our you know, snooty level of affluence. <laughs> okay, so now you see these things happen between families and households and this, where when you close the school, 
we see the parents and the kids having to move out of their neighborhoods to get the kind of resources that they've already paid taxes for. Now, so that's one thing. The second thing is that every student has a dollar sign on his forehead, okay? And wherever that student goes, a dollar goes with them. So the funding for that student, when, had, when you close the school in a neighborhood, the funding for that student goes to other neighborhoods. So when the school uh, closures hit in 2012 or 2013, somewhere back then, right. you know, this was at the time where the state was giving more money for students who were disadvantaged to bring them their, their level of education up to par with other neighborhoods that will have more affluence. But when we close the schools, we push the students into neighborhoods that are more affluent and they take the money with them, which means the job goes out there and, and everything associated with that school leaves the neighborhood. So now you've got this empty school. Now, one of the primary uh, indicators of good real estate activity is the quality of the schools. Right. Anybody who buys a home says, okay, let's look at the test scores of the schools and let's see who's going there and how they're doing because I want my little kid to do great in school. Because if you don't do great in school, you're not going to get a really good job. If you don't get a good job, you're not going to get a good house. You don't get a good house, you're going to get a crappy education for your kid. You know, and so it's this pattern that repeats. So when we close these schools, we also take away a lot of the values of these neighborhoods in addition to the cash flow that leaves the neighborhood. So people that work there, shop there, eat there, do all these things. And so there's a economic spinoff associated with that. So when you close the school, you actually start closing the economic productivity of the neighborhood. Right. Wow, okay. So you could see that just a simple thing as school closures is very complex. And the critical thing is, is that when you really don't have a good reason to close these schools, then it becomes racial. Right. And that, that's kind of what I wanted to get into as well, because when I, when I read about the court case and the briefing for it, I was struggling trying to really find the purpose behind the closures of the school districts, other than this pattern of affluence that you mentioned throughout this entire thing, right? As you said, if the cash, you know, that's used to fund specific students within a school moves to another more affluent, more, you know, economically stable area like Curtis Park, Land Park, you get more promising redevelopment. But at the same time, like where, you know, as you said before, you, nobody seemed to take into consideration that spinoff that you see within those homes. And it just baffled me that we had a court case such as this deny, you know, merits on the equal protection clause and have this economic runoff. I could, you know, it was hard for me to find the purpose behind it. So one of the big problems with the lawsuit uh, is that we were attempting to prove that the school closures had a disparate impact or a more negative effect for no real reason right. from one neighborhood to another. And at the time, we were a little ahead of the game here. At that time, the legal system, the law basically says you have to prove the intent of the school district to, to discriminate. And because the district was saying, well, this is going to help all neighborhoods, like all lives matter, right? right. <laughs> it was one of those arguments that uh, there's no intent. And because we couldn't prove intent, even though there was, even though, as you read there, there was discrimination, because we couldn't prove the intent to discriminate, the court, the case was thrown out. Now, the problem is two years later, right. the court says, you don't need intent. <laughs> Okay. You don't need to show the intent to discriminate. You just need to show that discrimination happened. So we were two years ahead of the legal world in, that, in making that happen. So that's why that case was lost. But the effects are still here because when you, these schools are still closed. And as these students are moving to different neighborhoods, we're holding up the value of life, the quality of life in other neighborhoods. And you're not and you're not getting the investment into those those 
neighborhoods that you need in order to promote that growth that you see in other areas. And so in Sacramento, the bulk of that money went to neighborhoods that have these race covenants, Land Park, Curtis Park, uh, McKinley Park, Hollywood Park. Those schools stood open, even though they had a, a lower uh, attendance rate. Because if you're looking at, you know, population in Sacramento today, the larger households are minority households, Southeast Asian, Mexican households. This is where, you know, you're getting people who have higher, uh, larger families. And in the older neighborhoods like McKinley Park and Curtis Park, you will see that the average age of women is, you know, in their mid 40s. And they're not making babies anymore. Okay, so your new caseload is coming from the places where you close the schools. <laughs> There's no known reason for doing that. So if you're trying to save money and you're trying to, you, you want your schools to be open in a place where your enrollment is high, not low. Right, and, and yeah, right. And, and of course, you know, it's the same sort of thing. Enrollment means more money, right? You know, the more students you have in the classroom, the more right. students that you can have more funding for to provide for them in the first place. So, you know, we use public policy as a way to protect this whiteness. And that's, you know, so during this time when we're picking out which schools to, to close and which ones to keep open, that's when we had a lot of things like a uh, uh, international baccalaureate programs and things of this sort. And all of a sudden, these things popped up. You said, well, we can't touch this school because it's a special school. So you use these special designations to protect these schools that you want to keep open. And you use the schools that are adjacent to where new housing development is going to happen. So that's what happened in McKinley Park. Right. Because they needed to keep those schools open, even though it had the lowest enrollment of everywhere. But you had a new housing developer that was coming to McKinley Village that, uh, you know, you need schools for that place. So they kept their schools open. The same thing with Curtis Park, when you're putting uh, Crocker Village, was coming, was, which was being built in the future. Um, and uh, so what we're doing is that we're, we close the schools in minority neighborhoods to keep schools open in white neighborhoods that we're expecting an increased enrollment. So we sacrifice our current enrollment for future enrollment. Pretty bizarre. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to sort of look towards the future. I mean, if we're at such a standstill with the funding that is allocated towards these neighborhoods that are clearly struggling, What's the proper path forward? I've, I've seen a lot of your work involving your Franklin plan and how you use climate change as sort of a platform to really reinvest in your community. But is that the viable option for a lot of these communities? I mean, what, what do you think we need to do feasibly in order to really reach out to these different areas? So uh, I think one of the things is understanding how we plan and who we plan for. So if we can go back to this process of redevelopment that you, that you were talking about, um, one of the problems that we have now is, I think it was a 2011 or 2012 or something like that when Jerry Brown was the governor, um, he closed all the redevelopment agencies. The people, the only last chance of, of development actually happening in these poor neighborhoods, we shut down the, the agency that could have helped them which means now these neighborhoods that are impoverished have no real system of governance to tap into to grow, which is why I wrote that plan in Franklin to show what would have to happen because there's no planning taking place right. for the people in the poorest neighborhoods. So if you're not planning to cure those patients, they will never get cured. It's, it's that simple. So if our planning is going to downtown, if our planning is going to suburban areas, and that's where we put the heart of all of our planning for the future, race now becomes a prospective process. We'll see this racial these racial patterns happening tomorrow because of the planning we do today. So when we're looking at where all of our infrastructure dollars go, 
And if it doesn't go into our poorest neighborhoods, don't expect them to come back. Yeah. And so you will see this racial spatial wealth gap continue into the future. Unless, you know, people see that the value of that property is so cheap that they're going to go in and buy it all up and then you gentrify. And that's what you see happening in Oak Park now. Right. And that's, that's another thing that I wanted to touch on as well is, you know, um, in uh, one of the articles that I read by NBC, they talk about, you know, th these big companies like Blackstone, well, they'll just go and buy all of these homes that were foreclosed because of the bubble or because of the Great Depression. Right. They'll buy millions of these units and then, you know, advertise this new renting lifestyle that we tried to avoid with the 30-year mortgage plan that we had come up with after the Great Depression. I mean, in my mind, that seems like incredibly counterintuitive to accumulating wealth. Am, am I on the right track there? Well, it depends who's accumulating wealth and who right. would qualify for the mortgages. Yeah. And so those patterns that you see happening back then are, are still continue to happen now. So the trick is how is understanding how this infrastructure that we use, financial and physical and urban planning infrastructure, continues to come up with the same outcomes, these racialized outcomes of rich and poor that we can actually map when we're in a colorblind society. I mean, fair go to school laws, fair go to church laws, fair go to the store laws, fair everything laws, right? If everything is fair, how can we have these such racial outcomes that really push people to protest? We're out on the streets again, like we were in the 60s. Right. What are we missing here? And the planning is the piece. When we don't include our poorest neighborhoods as part of the plan, then they will never be revitalized. And that's, um, that's actually something that I wanted to touch on as well. I've previously had a conversation with Deputy Executive Officer of the California Air Resources Board, Mr. Kurt Carperos, and he does a lot of work with uh, the Community Air Protection Program that was established under Assembly Bill 617. And he saw the very, this very same pattern of you know, the lack of governance within these, within these areas that you're referring to. Um, it, I, it was, you know, incredibly compelling. What he told me is that, you know, what happened um, during the, you know, the early 1900s when pollution producing facilities really, and factories really started booming in the greater Sacramento area, corporations would look at minority neighborhoods that didn't have as much representation in local government or in local planning and zoning and things like that. And then they would just cite these pollution producing facilities in these neighborhoods because they knew that they didn't have the connections in order to, you know, advocate for their own interests. And it's, you know, I feel like if I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I feel like I see that same similar sort of pattern when it comes to reinvesting in these different, in these different neighborhoods as well, right? It's, it's that same lack of connection that we've seen in the past. Yeah, and so if we're looking at, AB 16, 617, the legislation that says, you know, let's focus on, on neighborhoods right. that have this high concentration of all kinds of air pollution. Yeah. Well, let's look at what's causing it. And so in Sacramento, where uh, Highway 99 splits it in half. Absolutely. And so you will see where all that pollution and one of the biggest sources of pollution that we're going to see today, that we have today, is transit. And so if we've got a pack of cars coming in from Oak Grove and all places, coming to downtown to work and then leaving you will see that this major corridor is a huge source of the pollution. What do we do? We get rid of the freeway? Right. I mean, we know that's impossible to happen. And so this is one of the things is that we, we, we try to go out to the community and say, hey, you know, 
help us fix this problem. Well, <laughs> how are you going to fix that freeway? Are you going to close the freeway off? Or are you going to give everybody in the suburbs electric cars so that they don't pollute? What are you going to do with, you know, freight? Because one of the things about South Sacramento is that there's a lot of freight passing through, like especially in Franklin off of 47th Avenue. That area, there's a freight corridor. Um, what we see here is uh, a lot of uh, goods from all these big stores like Macy's, Home Depot, and everything like that. They come from the Bay Area and the docks in Oakland, and they come through those Mack trucks and they come right to this Franklin area. And then they move all of this freight from truck to truck so that it can go south and north from up to the state of Washington all the way down to LA. So you've got this corridor of freight movement, which we need for our economy. Right. But yet it's, it's fueled by diesel. <laughs> so it's, it's a big polluter. So how do you make it green? And one of the problems right now is our, is our fueling infrastructure for things like electric vehicles is not up to the place where we can actually let go of diesel. So you're going to see this happening until we figure out solutions for developing not only a local infrastructure, but a statewide infrastructure where we can fuel diesel or freight vehicles using electric motors. So now we have to figure out what is going to be that infrastructure for that to happen. And you will see this through the Central Valley if you follow Highway 99, and you will see this big pocket of pollution over the Central Valley because of farming and freight. So how are you going to fix these things if we're really not addressing this movement of uh, uh, putting the infrastructure in the places that matter? And especially when it's so crucial to the commercial economy that we've developed today as well. I mean, you know, what, you know, what's the path forward for something that we've ingrained into our economy, right? So, you know, and looking forward, if we're not planning, doing specific planning for neighborhoods, um, we're not going to fix those places. Uh, and AB 617 was one of those uh, attempts, first attempts to start looking at how, you know, pollution takes place in these neighborhoods. Um, and I think one of the issues is, is that we're looking at neighborhoods for solutions when neighborhoods didn't create any of these problems. Right. So now we're going down to the community and saying, hey, help us do this and tell us where your problems are. And, you know, unless you're fi fixing that infrastructure, nothing's going to happen. And all this, this climate change legislation says, we're really trying to get green by what, what's the, we keep pushing back this deadline from 2020 to 2030 to 2050, you know? And so we keep moving this deadline back to fix this problem, but we're still not taking care of the places and the infrastructure for that to happen. And so, you know, based on uh, your comments about what we've done so far, I mean, how do you, how do you think is the best way to address these communities? Because you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I feel like what tends to happen is we have this perspective that, you know, these neighborhoods are the issue, right? You know, they are the problem and we have to go in and fix the problem. And I know you've mentioned that a lot in your own work as well, but how do you think we're, uh, how do you think we should adjust that mindset in order to really cooperate with these different neighborhoods in order to address that issue? Well, um, the first thing is planning, is having a commitment to actually include those neighborhoods as a part of the city and regional economic productivity planning. And if you're not planning for these neighborhoods to be a vital source of economic productivity in your region, then you're gonna forget about it, which is what we're doing. The second thing is that you can't plan for climate change and make it contingent upon your budget. We can do green things, but only if somebody profits off it. We can do good green housing if somebody profits off it. So the profit, it's just like the body. Everything from the body has to be balanced. 
And it's the same thing with places where we live. We need to have economic productivity so that everybody can work and make a living. We need to have, we need to be environmentally conscious so that we don't kill ourselves. And we need to be fair so that everybody can enjoy the life equally. That's the, that's basic concepts, okay? And when you do this, you don't have to talk about race once. It's no mention of race because you're hitting all of the factors that bring this equilibrium for everything disbalance. And we're not looking at our planning through that lens. Right. We plan, we say, okay, um, we're going to make some rules for, for uh, redeveloping Stockton Boulevard. Uh, basically, it becomes an outline for development rather than an outline for the neighborhood. And therein lies the difference. Right. And do you, do you, do you think that um, sort of, you know, demonstrating the acceptance and the understanding of our past policy issues is going to help spur that progression forward? Because at least from, from a personal perspective, the, you know, the issues of mortgage redlining and race covenants was not something that was brought to me, right? As a student, I had to go out for myself and really educate myself on these various topics, critical as they are, and, you know, as impactful as they are to thousands, right, hundreds of thousands of people, I had to go out for myself and really try to attempt to understand what, you know, what is going on in my own city. I mean, do you think that that's, you know, something that is, you know, a root of a problem, like something that's just ingrained in the system? I mean, how do, how do we go forward from something as challenging as, as that? Well, yeah, the way I see things is that I, my analytical lens, so to speak. Right. What I look at is, you know, what does it take for a neighborhood to survive? So it needs housing, it needs education, it needs jobs, it needs wealth accumulation, you know, and, uh, and it needs an infrastructure that supports all of that. Roads, schools, broadband, all of this. And so when a neighborhood is deficient or is not thriving, like comparing Carmichael to Oak Park or the South Oak Park, you will see some differences. Why is there differences? You will find the differences in the schools, in this housing, in, the, in, in all that infrastructure. Right. So if we are not focused on that infrastructure, we cannot expect these neighborhoods to move forward. And when we strip them of the assets that they have, the schools, the roads, things of this sort, you, what we're doing is now creating um, the, the pathway for social disasters to happen. So if we go back and look at the Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, was that a social disaster or a natural disaster? We know the places that got hit hardest were the places that you know were uh, segregated. The Ninth Ward, you know, that's where everything happened. So we know we purposely kept those people in the Ninth Ward because of their color. So the people that suffered the most from this natural disaster is also a social disaster. Let's bring this forward now to COVID. And when we start looking at where this stuff happened in Sacramento, it happened in the exact same red line spaces. If we look at all the indicators or the at-risk indicators for COVID, you know, it's, it's that frontline employment, that low-level employment, the, yeah. the illnesses of diabetes and and uh, asthma and all these things and all the indicators for COVID we can map through in that north-south geography. So where do you think COVID's going to hit? And exactly where it hit. The problem is we didn't know about it because that's not where we tested. We tested in the good neighborhoods first. 
Right. And it, and it relates back to that same issue of accessibility of resources. Right. I mean, it, it seems like at least, you know, from what, from what I've researched, you know, I've done a lot of research recently to really keep myself updated on this. It really feels like a cycle and it, you know, and it, it feels like something that's just a continuation that um, whether or not it's ignorance or whether or not it's just, you know, plain and simple mistakes created by our legislation. I, you know, as you've said before, it's a resounding pattern. So, you know, so, and it, it keeps growing. Right. So we still on COVID, we look at with a place that they got hit, the Basel Heights, Valley High area, South Sacramento, we could have predicted this. Now the problem is, okay, we have to close our schools. <laughs> and now we're back at square one, right. So now you close your schools, the people, who have, who use schools to access things like broadband and internet services. Mm -hmm. If you look at minorities, a lot of them don't have internet at home. So how are you going to do this homeschooling stuff? Or how are you going to work at home if you don't have it? A lot of people are, are in the dire straits where they're, you know, having to make decisions of, do they pay their rent or do they pay for broadband? So we could actually map this broadband and computer access by this north-south geography. The same, right? Yeah, right. The same. same okay. So now with it, so and that's you know your internet access is is one of the best ways to access your primary care physician. Especially now too. I mean, so so now you see how we even disconnected these people even more from the process. Right. Oh, I mean, yeah, it is. It is incredible. I mean, how how you know relevant it really can be, especially in a situation like COVID. I mean, it really you know, it. I feel like it. Unfortunate as it is, it really is a prime example of a lot of the injustice that you see within you know. Our, you know, our own city. It's, it's incredible. So that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately enough. Alrighty. I think that's all the time that we have for today. Mr. Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was a conversation with Dr. Jesus Hernandez on the foundation of social injustices through racially motivated public policy. The research behind this correlation between social ills and previous legislation is incredibly impactful, and I encourage you all to engage in some of Dr. Hernandez's published research in order to further your understanding of the subject. Some of his most compelling articles are Redlining Revisited, Mortgage Lending Patterns in Sacramento through 1930 to 2004, and The Rocky Road Home, Latino Immigration and Fair Housing in California. Thank you all again for listening to the third installment of Civil Discourse Reimagined.